0: Luke chapter 23 verses 32 through 43 describes in great detail the most horrifying and painful moments of Jesus' final act of sacrifice on the cross. It's hard to hear and hard to read. It is full of people mocking and taunting Jesus at the moment of his greatest physical trial. Hear these words from Calvary, spoken in the tone and mood of that terrible, terrible, Horrible, wonderful day at the cross. Jesus wasn't the only one being crucified that day. There were two others. They were criminals who were also being led to their execution. When they came to the place known as the skull, they crucified Jesus there in the company of the criminals. One, to the right of Jesus. And the other to his left. Father, forgive them, for they do not know. Dividing up his clothes, they threw dice for them. The rulers ridiculed and sneered at them. The people stood there staring at him. The ringleaders made faces, taunting Jesus. Save yourself, would you? Some king of the Jews. So, he was supposed to rescue others, was he? He was supposed to be God's anointed, the liberated king. Let's see him start by liberating himself. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him and cruelly offering him sour wine and saying sarcastically, Hey, if you're the king of the Jews, why don't you free yourself? Even the inscription they placed over him was intended to mock him. This is the king of the Jews. This was written in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. You're supposed to be the anointed one, right? Well, do it. Rescue yourself and us. But the other criminal told him to be quiet. Don't you have any fear of God at all? You're getting the same death sentence he is. We're getting what we deserve since we're, we're committed crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong at all. Jesus. I promise you that this very day you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of God mockingly spoken that day by the crowd. This is the word of God graciously spoken that day by Jesus the Christ. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: Thanks Thanks be to to God. Sean, if I, could, if I could have some help for a moment, I don't think Doug is feeling very well, and I think he was going to move the, uh, the TV, if you don't mind. Thank you, sir. So, what happened to the other guy? I mean, I know what happened to the one guy. There were two thieves. And I know what happened to the one guy because it's about what happened to him. He was the good one. I want to know what happened to the other guy, to the other criminal. There was one on his right, there was one on his left. I want to know about the one that was on his left. What happened to him? Everything I've ever read, everything I've ever, frankly, I've ever taught or heard preached about this text is all about the one guy. It's all about the good guy. It's all about the penitent thief. It's about the one that was on his right. Every sermon I ever had concentrates on him. So what happened to the other one? What happened to the other guy? What happened to the bad thief? What happened to the impenitent thief, as they call him? What what happened to the one on the left? I think it may be more important for us to figure out what happened to him, to the one on his right. Everything in this story focuses on the one called the penitent thief. I mean, at the beginning of the story... The penitent thief mocks just like everybody else. Everybody is mocking Jesus. Everybody is saying something cruelly to him. The priests, soldiers, passers by, the crowd, everybody, even Peter, about this Jesus. And then, suddenly, this penitent thief has a dramatic change of heart in verses 39 to 41 this it becomes clear it says one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him aren't you the messiah save yourself well that's the bad thief but the other criminal the good one rebuked him and saying don't you fear god since you're under the sense deserve but this man this man's done nothing wrong That's the turning point of the story. One thief repents, the other one does not. Here's what happens in verse 42. In verse 42, it says, then he came, Jesus said, remember me, he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus answered and said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me. In paradise, Ah, the story gets wrapped up nice, doesn't it? It's like a sitcom or a one-hour drama. Everything, any problem that you have, any difficulty can be solved in a half an hour or an hour. Isn't it great to know? Yee, not in my life. But that's the turning point of the story. That's how it gets all wrapped up nice and neat. And from that point forward, the only questions that you have in the text are about speed and place. How quickly will the penitent thief be saved? And Jesus says, today. And where will you end up? After you die. Paradise. I have no idea where paradise is. That's another sermon. By the way, Did you know that these two guys, I have no idea if these are the real names, but down through church tradition, they actually named both of these. The good thief, you may have heard of this name, the good thief is called Dismas. And if you've ever done some kind of play that involves the thieves, you always have a play where the guy is Dismas. They use his name because that comes out of church tradition. I'd never heard that they named the other guy. But they did. His name is Gestus. I have no idea whether that's their name, but let me refer to them as such. Dismas, the good one, Gestus, the bad. And they are very definitely portrayed throughout church history as the good thief and the bad thief, as the angel and the demon, as the saved one and the sinner. There's a very famous artist. His name is Hans von Tubingen. And he painted this picture. He painted this picture. Uh, He's an Austrian artist. And it's a difficult one to see from a distance. So let me explain to you. Uh, Jesus obviously is in the middle. On Jesus' right, which would be your left, is the good thief. He's the one that's kind of with his head down. The bad thief is on Jesus' left. Again, that would be your right. He's the one that has his head back, What you really can't see in the painting is what von Tübingen put above the good thief and the bad thief. Above holding on to the good thief, giving him some relief, pulling him up. That's the only way you could get a breath when you were crucified. You had to be able to stand up, but the only thing you could stand on was your feet, which had nails through them. It was not a pleasant way to die. On the other side, you can't really see it, but he's got his head uh, backward, and that's because there's a demon above him, the tubagin put in, and he's pulling on him and scratching him and clawing him. Nasty guy. And this is how the two thieves are portrayed in church history and in paintings. Church history determined that Dismas went to heaven and that Gestus went to hell. Ancient mythology about Gestus even concluded that Gestus was part of a band of thieves that somehow attacked Mary, Joseph, and the baby. Don't ask me where they got that one. But this is how we've characterized him. This is how the church has viewed the other guy. There's nothing redeeming about the other guy, he's the ultimate personification of a lost sinner. If you want to know what sin is, it's easy. You look at Judas and you look at Gestus. They're the ultimate sinners. Problem with all of this is that nobody really looks at the text. <laughs> we have so many things that we believe that have absolutely nothing to do with the text. But we believe them because we heard them. For instance, how many of you, how many of you know that there's an innkeeper in the Christmas story? How many, you all know there's an innkeeper, right? They couldn't find room in an inn. Well, there must have been an innkeeper. But there is no innkeeper there. We read things into, we impose things on the Scripture. And this is one of the things that I think we've done because nobody really looks at this text. Because if you looked at this text your view of Gestus might be vastly different than the way that the church has portrayed him in these kinds of paintings and in these kinds of writings. Let's read. everybody. Priests mocked him. Soldiers mocked him. Pilate mocked him. Even though he tried to get him off, he eventually mocked him. Even Herod, who he got sent to, Herod mocked him. The crowd, the bypassers, Peter down there denying him three times, the disciples at a distance, way away, they all mocked him in one way, shape, or form. great sin is that he mocked Jesus, which we'll look at in a minute. I'm trying to figure out what sets him apart from everybody else. Because they all mocked him. They all said terrible things about him. What exactly was it that Gestus did? What is exactly was it that he did that made, this him, that made him the bad thief? What did this bad thief do? He's so damnable that he becomes the very symbol of all unrepentant sinners. Take a look what it actually says. Verse 34. Just before that, I think. and may not be in there. In verse, in verse 39, rather, let me read it. In verse 39, here's what it says. One of the criminals who hung there hurled, save yourself and us. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Wow. What an insult. This is an insult? Aren't you the Christ? Well, that's pretty insulting. Save yourself and us? That's pretty terrible. Come on, folks. The thief who is so bad, who is mocking of Jesus, is, aren't you the Messiah? And if you would, save us and yourself. Now, I can think of better ways to mock Jesus. I'm not even sure any of that is mocking. Isn't it pleading? I mean, if you're hanging on a cross and you've got a chance to survive this and the chance to survive this is the guy that's hanging next to you, wouldn't you cry out and say, if you're the Messiah or aren't you the Messiah? Or horrible. Sometimes we think about things and believe things about the text and believe things about people. We believe things about people that we've been told. Not that we know. And I got some rumors out there about me. And no thank you, I won't tell you what they are. where's the evil in this? Where's the problem? Where's the pain? Where's the mocking? You're the Messiah? Save us? Where's... <laughs> What's wrong with that? Where's the evil in this? Where's the... where's the pain? He's about to die the most horrible death, and he cries out for mercy. He cries out for help. Isn't that the textbook definition of how to get saved? (laughs) I can't do this myself. Jesus, do something. Is it because he doesn't utter the magic words? Is that the problem? Is it because where the thief says, help me? I was bad, I was wrong, I deserve this. Is that what it is? Is God so narrow, so small, so legalistic, that if you don't utter the exact right phrase, you get to go to hell condemned? So help me. What happened to the other guy? Let me put on my professor's hat for a moment. Oh, you knew you were going to get this. I've waited this long. Here we go. Here we go. I want to teach you how to study the Scripture. Because we, from the pulpit and in the pew, let's let's not leave out folks that stand where I stand. We study the scripture and we, we interpret the scripture very poorly at a lot of times. And it's basically because we don't do something that we refer to in seminary as exegesis. It's probably a term you've heard. Exegesis simply means that when you're studying a text, in this case a text of scripture, You don't bring your own, oh, I know what that is, thinking about it. You don't say, oh, yeah, I heard something about this, so I know what this says because somebody told me something. Exegesis is when you say, Lord, I want to study your scripture, and my mind and heart is open. Teach me. And you let the scripture itself speak to you. Without you trying to impose on it what you want it to say. The second thing, and we like to throw this term around, you'll never use this again, but in seminary we like, to ter- we like to throw out this term pericope. A pericope is where does a passage start and where does a passage end? And sometimes it's really important to determine where, th- where the story begins and where it concludes because you can cut off things that you need to know. In this case, for instance, this text does not begin with this. It doesn't begin with Jesus hanging on the cross and everybody mocking him. The text really begins before that. Because the text begins in verse 32. And that's why I had the readers, I made sure that the readers got up and they shared the opening of the text. Because it's important that you realize this story begins in verse 32. Let me tell you why. As they're describing what's going on. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out to be, uh, uh, with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals. One on his right, the other one on his left. But did you notice that Jesus speaks before the mocking starts? That's verse 34. Jesus says from the cross, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Before they did anything, before they mocked him, before the bad thief said anything, before the good thief said the magic anything happened, Jesus, hanging on the cross in anticipation of what is happening, has happened, and will happen, says, Father, I don't care what they're doing. I don't care what they will do to me on the cross. Father, forgive them. They really don't know that it's me. They don't know what they're doing. It's only after that that the mocking starts. It's only after that that Gestas says all the bad things he says. It's only after that that Dismas says the magic words. Before it ever happened, Jesus already said, All right, God, don't hold them responsible. Forgive them all. You want to know what happened to the bad thief, to the other guy? I think it's pretty clear. He got forgiven just like everybody else. Now that messes up your story, doesn't it? Aren't you glad when God messes up your narrow stories? Aren't you glad when God steps in and says, no, 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 you don't get to judge. I'll do that. Aren't you glad when God steps in and says, no, 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 you don't don't always get to bring about justice, I'm the one that brings about justice, and the way I bring about justice and who I forgive is up to me, it's not up to you. How many of you think that, hope that, believe that you're going to go to heaven when you die? Very good. Let me guarantee you something. Something. You're going to be awfully surprised who's there. <laughs> and who's not? Because who's there and who's not is more about what he ought to do. That's a good place for an amen. See, you're always late with that. (laughs) We've developed a terrible theology about this passage, and it leaks through to everything else. We've developed a theology that we know who's saved. We know who's forgiven, and we know who's not. Being a pastor... I found out that the people that were furthest away from God by their actions and attitudes were much closer to God than people that spoke righteously but didn't live it. You've got to remember in this passage, we're talking about Jesus here. We're not talking about Sean, we're not talking about Brandon, not talking about me. Talking about Jesus. about Jesus. If you don't, don't know any theology at all, which I understand, but if you don't know anything about... Let me, let me give you some theology. You ready? You can all t- get an ace. You can ace a theology test by knowing this. Jesus loves to forgive. I don't mean that he likes to forgive. I don't mean that he forgives begrudgingly. I don't mean that he's got a list and doles out who will and who won't. I mean that Jesus, I know that he loves to forgive because he died so he could do it. He suffered the mocking so he could do it. He suffered the nails so he could do it. He suffered the cross because he wanted to do it. He got beaten and flogged because he loves to forgive. And he'd go through anything to have this power and ability preserved in the heart and mind and spirit of God. That when people are in sin, God, he's not reticent. He doles it out. Just ask the woman caught in adultery. All the guys, I love this one. All the guys have (laughs) rocked. We're going to get her. (laughs) Jesus walks in and says, "Uh, guys, unless you guys have never done anything wrong, he who has not sinned cast the first stone. By the way, in that story, where's the guy? Can I ask? Why is it the woman caught in adultery? Last time I checked, adultery took two people. (laughs) At least. Let's talk about it in modern times, right? Where's the guy? Well, that's another sermon. Jesus says, after the guys all drop their stones and walk away... He says, Where are your accusers? She realizes they've left, and then he says, Go, woman, sin no more, because I don't condemn you either. Jesus loves to forgive. I mean, he really loves to forgive. Ask the, ask the guy who is demon possessed and is living naked in a cave because he can't tell whether Jesus loves to forgive. Why don't you ask David, after he commits sin with Bathsheba, gets found out because she gets pregnant, and even before that, and as a result of that, has Uriah, one of his faithful soldiers, killed, ask David whether God loves to forgive. Ask Paul on the road to Damascus whether God loves to forgive, even while you're persecuting the church. Ask Simon, the magician of God, and then is condemned for it, If God loves to forgive, ask Peter after the resurrection, When Jesus comes to him three times and says he's forgiven, ask Peter if God loves to forgive. Ask Thomas, who doubted that Jesus was resurrected and wouldn't believe until he put his hands in his side and in his hands, ask Thomas if Jesus loves to forgive. And in one chorus, they will all say, the primary loves to forgive. He is not reticent. At all, it's this wonderful hymn. Thank you. It's this wonderful hymn. You know, a hymn is a song that's in a well, we've talked about that church of God hymn. Charles Naylor lying in a bed paralyzed, in a bus accident, and he couldn't walk for the rest of his life. All he could do was write teach, preach from a bed, here's what he writes marvelous grace of our loving Lord grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt what a great line that is yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there was the blood of the lamb, there the blood of the lamb was spilt marvelous infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe, all who are longing to see his face. Will you this moment his grace receive? (laughs) Oh, God, we ought to sing that more often. Grace, grace, God's grace within If you haven't understood this, let me try and make it as clear as I can. Forgiveness is not dependent on the size and the magnitude of your sin. You cannot sit there and say, God will never forgive me of that. It's too terrible. It's me of that. Can't say that. Why? Because forgiveness, the grace of God, is not dependent upon the size and the magnitude of your sin. You know what it's dependent upon? It's dependent upon the size and the magnitude of God's grace. And that is larger than any sin you have ever done or ever will do. There is nothing, say that with me, there is nothing, one more time, there is. Oh, no, pop. Say it again, there is nothing that you cannot be forgiven of. The only way you cannot be forgiven is if you don't receive the forgiveness that God gives. The only way that any of those who mock Jesus could ever be held accountable for mocking Jesus is if they never asked Jesus for help. That's why the good thief is so wonderful, because he obviously asks for help. But I think that's why the bad thief is a good thief, because he also asks for help. Save us! If you're the Messiah, save us! As long as you receive, the grace of God will be given to you. But I find that grace and forgiveness are the most difficult things for most Christians to handle. Receive grace. God says you must then offer it. You see, and I would rather the people that have wronged me get their just desserts. I want Jim South to suffer. In Jesus' name. <laughs> the grace of God is so great that it has saved you from, here's a good theological term. Ready? The grace of God is so great that it has saved you from whatever. Therefore, you can, extre- you can extend the grace of God to, here's the other theological term, whoever. I was in my first senior pastorate in a little town, Boyertown, Pennsylvania, eastern Pennsylvania. Had a guy in the church that... Wrote to the Board of Trustees to tell them how terrible I was and accused me of all kinds of things. I never really had to face something like this. I got really hot under the collar. And so I'm complaining to Joni I'm gonna, you know, I wanna miss. And so I called the guy I had worked on, I had worked with as an associate pastor previous to coming there. So I called Forrest. And I told him, I said, Forrest, he said, if they think that any of these are true, I'm going to resign on the spot. Righteous (laughs) indignation. And Forrest gave me the wisest advice I could have ever gotten at that moment. He said, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. He said, calm down, take a breath. Said, let me make a suggestion to you. I said, what, guys? You know how to bring it, friends, son of a. He said, when you get in the meeting, talk. If what he has said, and I know it's not true, but if what he has said is untrue, eventually he will hang himself. I said, but Forrest, I want to. <laughs> To just let him speak, hold your tongue. So I went to the meeting. I trusted Forrest, I hated his advice, but I trusted him. And so, Chairman SSDs apparently had listened in on the phone call because all they did was let this guy talk. By the end of it, he was in tears, confessing his own lies and pain and anguish. We ended the meeting praying for him and trying to help him navigate through his own pain. I never said a word. By the end, I extended him some kind of grace because he was more pitiful than he was painful. He was more broken than he was boisterous. people will come up to you and try and mold and change you into their view of what you should be. Don't. I continue to hear story after story about our young people, both here and anywhere that you are, that are being confronted by a kind of peer pressure that's telling them what their sexual identity must be. More often than not, they're being confronted about this by people, even young people, who are still in formative years and who are hurting and in pain themselves for a lot of reasons, many times having nothing to do with what their sexual identity is. And yet, they're being told, You gotta be this, or you must be this. Well, if you like me, what does that mean? You can't say you like me to anybody, Al. Did you know that? The youth, they get a a text message from somebody who's of the same sex and says, I really like you. They've got to text back and say, what do you mean? People react just like that guy in the church that I pastored, people react out of their anguish and pain out of their hurt, out of the things that they've been through that have damaged them, and the only way they can begin a lot of times, to feel good about themselves is to have you experience pain. So they bully you. They say all kinds of nasty things about you. They want you to feel the same pain they do. When I was a senior or a freshman in high school, when I was a freshman in high school, I set a record for our high school for the most fights by a freshman. Thank you. Thank you very much. I I feel pretty honored. It all stemmed from the fact that I played basketball. I was a freshman And I was starting on the junior varsity basketball team, and and I was actually sitting, participating in the varsity games. And there was another guy who played the same position that I did, and he thought he should be ahead of me, and he wasn't, because I was better than he was. And he couldn't accept that. His identity was in being the best basketball player out there. Oh, not on the basketball court, because if he taunted me on the basketball court, I'd I'd take him to task. See, on the court, I could outplay him. So if he wanted to mess with me, I'd mess with him, and he'd look silly, which would only make him more angry. But then during the day, he would try and pick fights with me. I refused, because I didn't want to get thrown out of school or off the basketball team and wouldn't fight him, the more he taunted me and bullied me and tried to get me to fight. It got to the point where I didn't want to go to school. I started trying to feign sickness to get out of going to school. The problem was my mother was a nurse. If your mother's a nurse, that's... Plus, if I missed school, I couldn't go to basketball practice, and I wanted to go to basketball practice. So I would throw up before school, sick at the taunting and bullying that I would get, because this guy was popular and I wasn't. So his friends would start to bully me and taunt me as well. This went on for some time, and my high school basketball coach, the varsity coach, got wind of it. And he called me into his office. I didn't know why he was calling me into his office. And he said, I gather you're going through a tough time with this guy. And I just kind of hung my head and shook my head and said nothing. He said, this is what I want you to do. He said, next time you're in the cafeteria and everybody's in there and this guy starts to bully you and ask you to fight, I want you to stand up and confront him. And I said, but coach, he said, Jeff, do you trust me? I said, well, yeah, coach. He said, I want you to stand up in front of me. So next day, I'm in the cafeteria. This guy comes and sits across the table from me and says, well, we got to fight. Well, we got to fight. Come on, he's pushing my tray. Of course, I never responded but my coach told me what to do. So I stood up, and he went, oh, man, yeah, and he stood up. We walked to the end of the table, and he's walking to the end of the table, and now he's going to start swinging. This was the point at which... I began to wonder about the plan at that moment as to how wise this was. As I'm contemplating what it's going to be like, to get hit or to end up in this fight, this, this breeze, no, no, this wind, this tornado comes flying past me. It's Mr. Lober, Happened to be the head football coach at another school. And as he went by me, this kid took one step toward me. And Mr. Lober, in true football fashion, took his elbow, put it in this guy's chest, lifted him off the ground, and knocked him two steps backward. The kid with fire, lober he was just coming back at me. Lober. He would get so arrested for this now, but trust me, this is one of the great moments of my life, and I'm celebrating this. I don't care what you think. <laughs> this guy comes at me. Lober hits him again, two steps backward. A third time, two steps backward, and finally he comes this guy down and yells at him. He says, "You get to the office right now. Do not stop anywhere." I'm and he pulls the whole cafeteria and oh, like this, and they're all following the thing. I am still standing in the exact spot I was when this whole thing started. Haven't moved. Haven't done anything except stand up. The freshman coach taps me on the shoulder, Mr. Huff, and says, Jeff, maybe you ought to go down to the principal's office too. I said, okay. And so with all the commotion half a hallway ahead of me, By myself, in calmness, I slowly walk down the hall and over to the office. And we get ushered into Mr. McNally's office. Mr. McNally was the vice principal. He did all of the discipline for the school. He was scary beyond measure. He yelled. He got in your face. He looked intimidating. We went into his office, and he read us the riot act. You guys will never fight again. I don't care if I hear one thing, I'll throw you all out. You'll be off the basketball team. You'll never go to school. He said, and this goes not just for when you're in school, it goes for when you're on the basketball court and after school and on the weekends. If I hear anything, I'll have it out with you and you won't like the results. Now stand up and shake hands. Shook hands weakly. <laughs> the kid walks out first. I go to walk out. I don't know why I did it, but as I getting ready to walk out, I look back at Mr. McNally. And when I look back at Mr. McNally with the other kid, his back walking out, Mr. McNally smiled at me and went. just for you online people. (laughs) My coach had it all set up and I never got into a fight again and he never bothered me again. Folks, out of their own pain, people will try and make you be in pain because it's the only way they can feel okay about being in pain? Your first response should never be to pick up a club or to get into a verbal argument. Your first reaction is to look around and see if Mr. Lober is there by any chance. Joni and I have learned in 45 years of marriage and numerous fights that we have had over the course of our marriage, over the last two days, very different people. We argue a lot, but we've learned that when we're angry, typically when we're angry at one another, one of the things we can say is, honey, what are you really angry about? And it's rarely that I'm angry at her or she's angry at me. It's about something else. That's true of life, who you are. Don't let them try and grab you and push you and pull you into their pain. I can tell you who you are. You're a child of God. That's who you are. And you're a healing agent, even for their great pain. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder, <laughs> yonder on Calvary's Mount outboard. There where the blood of the Lamb was spelt. Amen. God's grace. Folks. I've told you several times, I like altar calls. Why? Because wouldn't it be great to receive some of God's grace today? Wouldn't it be great to pour out some of God's grace from you to somebody else? Wouldn't it be great to just live in grace instead of live in guilt? Wouldn't it be marvelous to to live in his forgiveness? Worship team, come on. Wouldn't it be great to live in his forgiveness? forgiveness his bask in the sunshine of his grace be part of his gift then live in the guilt that others want to play might be a good time just to come to the altar to experience God's grace fresh and anew maybe you don't have some big sin to confess maybe you just want to say Lord I'd just like to live in your grace even more maybe you just need to come forward and say Lord help me because i've got somebody that really aggravates the snot out of me that's a biblical term but i'd i'd like to i'd like to love them if angry they must really need it maybe you ought to pray for somebody that you have a tough time with so that you can be god's hands and heart for them would you stand with me Would you stand with me as as we sing and the altars are open? Lord, just pour out your grace on us. if If the thieves were willing to do this from a cross with all the pain and anguish, he asked for it. Can't we take a couple of steps? Can't we make a move? Can't we just open ourselves up to your grace and then pour it out from us to others so that they may feel whole for the first time in their lives. In Jesus' name.